<clears throat> so we've been looking in Hebrews, like, like chapter 8, last week, comparing the old covenant, the law given through Moses, with the new and better covenant in Messiah Jesus. And the first half of Hebrews chapter 9 talks about the tabernacle of Israel, compares it to a greater and better sanctuary. The first was earthly. We may say the greater sanctuary is heavenly, but it isn't just about distance or remoteness. I'm going to give you a bit of background, then we're going to go into the scripture. The tabernacle was God's tent among the tents of Israel. We must imagine a huge tent city with a couple of million inhabitants, maybe three million people in this huge tent city. God's tabernacle, God's tent, is right in the middle of the camp with three tribes of Israel on the north, three on the south, three on the east, three on the west. They're surrounding God's tent because God planned it that way. He's in the middle. He lives where they live. The tabernacle was probably even built in a similar way to their tents. And above it was a pillar of cloud during the daytime and a pillar of fire at night. Uh, my notes have said a pillar of cloud and a pillar of crowd. There's, there you go, I don't even read them properly, do I? There was much in the design of the tabernacle which foreshadowed Jesus and the new covenant. For instance, there were th- 33 rows of coloured animal skins covering the tabernacle. You can see the kind of the rows going along it there. There were 33, I don't know if there's 33 there, but the last three were folded back so you could see into the tabernacle. 33 rows, three on view. How many years did Jesus live in obscurity, hidden? 30. How many was he on view? Three. It's pictured there, even in that. That's just one example. Just one example. You can find books on the internet uh, from, you know, well-known booksellers <laughs> or YouTube movies that will take you through practically every detail of the construction and rituals of the tabernacle in wilderness. And you can learn point by point more about Jesus and the New Covenant. But just keep in mind, and by the way, um, um, yeah, just keep in mind that no matter how wonderful the tabernacle was, it was only a foreshadow of the light of Jesus himself. All right? Um, the reason I'm not going into lots of detail about all of these things in the tabernacle is that's not what I'm here for today. And Paul says when we get to it in verse 5, of these things we cannot now speak in detail. So neither can I, for my task is to explain and apply what scripture gives us here and not go far away from it. And, and if you want a detailed explanation of the tabernacle of God, I can do that another time. We'll do that as a Thursday night series for a couple of weeks maybe if you've got an interest in it. But you can go and buy a book or look on the internet and find stuff. So moving in from the entrance to the, of, in, on the east, you'd have come to a bronze altar of sacrifice. Now I've got a red point here. There's an altar there. That's where they burn the animals, yeah? The sacrifices. Then there's a, a washing bowl called the laver. And then there's a part here, which is the outer part of the sanctuary. And then there's an inner part of the sanctuary, the Holy of Holies. There would have been a lot of blood and gore in that outer court. All right? You see, most of the pictures I show you here were nice, nice clean sand. <laughs> Nothing like it. The smell of the place was like a slaughterhouse compared with a campfire barbecue as animals were burned on the altar. Kind of nice and nasty at the same time. Paul's ignored the brazen altar. He's ignored the lava, which contained water. On all the business of sacrifices and offerings, he focuses our attention straight into the tent, the sanctuary, and what it contains. So here we are. We'll go to Scripture. 
Now, even the first covenant, the law, given through Moses, had regulations of divine worship and an earthly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one in which were the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread that is called the holy, this is called the holy place. Inside that inner tent, but the outer part of the tent, there's a, there's a two-thirds, one-third. Two-thirds was the priest went in and out. One-third, one priest went once a year. This is, the, this is the outer part of the sanctuary. It's called the holy place. The very most inner part was called the holy of holies, or the most holy place. In there you've got three things. You've got a lampstand, shaped like a tree. You've got a table which has bread on it, and you've got an altar which, on which they burned incense. The lampstand reminds us of the tree of life in the Garden of Eden, but now it's also a tree of light. The table of bread had 12 fresh loaves of bread laid there every day, one for each tribe of Israel. It wasn't for God to eat. The intention was that priests would eat the bread in the presence of God. Eating in the presence of God. Guess what Adam did before he fell? He ate in the presence of God. Guess what Abraham did when God came to call on him and sat in his tent? Abraham sat down and ate with God. David, one time, ate the bread, that bread, from the tabernacle. And he wrote, as I read earlier in Psalm 23, the Lord spreads a table for me. It's God's table inviting us to eat with him. Now let me repeat this before we go on. This is all about Jesus. All of these things are pictures of of Jesus and of our relationship with him. So let's think about Jesus on the tabernacle. Follow these statements with me from John chapter 1. I'm not going to go into the whole chapter. John chapter 1. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. What did I just say about that candlestick? It was the tree of life, but now it had light on it as well. It's all about Jesus. And the word became flesh and dwelt. The word there is the same word as tabernacle. He tabernacled amongst us. And we saw his glory. Glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The tabernacle was a foreshadow. We Bible's called to say a type, a picture of Jesus. His glory was hidden within a human frame, a human body. You didn't notice him until he did something or said something. And then the glory began to be seen. Yet his life is the light and light of men. And John and others saw his glory, whether he was performing a miracle and they saw his glory in that, or on the matter of transfiguration where they saw his glory literally shine. Later in John's Gospel, the first two of the seven great I am statements about the Lord Jesus that he makes of himself are these. I am the bread of life. Second one, I am the light of the world. When you go into the holy place, the outer part, what do you get? One side, light. One side, bread. Jesus says, I am. This tabernacle imagery is used by the Lord Jesus himself. He's our bread of life. We're fed by him. We eat at his table every time we celebrate communion. But actually we feed on him every day. We need his life to nourish us. Jesus is our tree of life and of light. He's the source of all light, all encouragement, all illumination, all instruction, all revelation. Jesus is the source through the Holy Spirit. But we need to move in even closer now. Beyond the second veil, 
because there's a curtain on the outside of the tabernacle, then there's another curtain inside between the two-thirds, one-third areas. Behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle, another kind of little tent in itself, which is called the Holy of Holies, having a golden altar of incense. The golden altar of incense was in fact across the entrance to the Holy of Holies, but the high, and the high priest stepped behind that and through that veil, which had a tapestry of um, cherubim on it, to stand before the Ark of the Covenant just once a year on the Day of Atonement. Scripture here speaks of that altar of incense as belonging to the inner sanctuary, but it stood outside the veil. It was the entrance in. The altar of incense had burning charcoal coals. They were removed every day, day after day, hour after hour, from the bronze altar of sacrifice. Hot coals of charcoal were brought in, laid on that little altar there, and then they placed incense in pans, which then smoldered, and the whole place was full of smoke. If you've ever been to an Orthodox, Catholic, or High Anglican church, raise your hand if you've been to one of those. Have you ever smelt the incense? They wave the incense around? By the way, Christian churches that go back to putting gold on things and special robes and burning incense are going back to shadows about about which Jesus is the reality. Yeah? I'm going to make that comment to you. Why, why do you go back to the shadows? Jesus is the real deal. The smoke and the smell filled that holy place. Incense in Scripture, this image in Scripture, is a symbol of prayer and of worship. The prayers of the saints arise like incense before God. Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, was offering incense at that table in the temple when an angel of the Lord appeared to him in Luke 1. But we're going even into the very inner part of the tabernacle, the Holy of Holies, within that thick curtain or veil. Remember when Jesus died on the cross? At that moment, the veil in the temple was torn from top to bottom. But the temple revealed an empty room. But the veil here is through into the very presence of God. There inside the veil, we see the Ark of the Covenant, which looked something like that. Here's what it says in Scripture. The Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden jar holding manna, and Aaron's rod which budded, and the tables of the covenant, which is the, the two tablets of the Lord, two stone tablets of the Lord. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat, but of these things we cannot now speak in detail. The ark had inside it the broken tablets of the law. The first set which God gave to Moses, when Moses came down the mountain and saw the people, let's just politely say partying, it was a drunken orgy really. He threw them down and they were broken. So a second set were made and the broken set were inside the ark. And the second set were put up and published outside the tabernacle area so people could see them. It also contained a golden jar of the manna, the food which God provided every day for the people of Israel in the wilderness and Aaron's rod, the body, when there was a contention about leadership. We're all as good as him. Why has he got to be the high priest and the leader? And, you know, God gave them all a stick and, and, and Aaron's bud was placed in the presence of God and the next day it had not only budded but it produced almonds. <laughs> it had fruited and produced, produced the nuts. And that rod was put into the Ark of the Covenant as a testimony 
to divinely appointed leadership by God's testimony. Above the ark, two statutory cherubim looked down onto the golden lid, which is called the mercy seat, which covered the ark of the covenant. And remember, broken law of God underneath this golden lid, cherubim above. Their wings almost touched in the space above the mercy seat. Both cherubim and seraphim are pictured in scripture as having wings, but angels are not. Sorry everybody to put the angel on your Christmas tree in the next few weeks, but the angels in the Bible don't have wings. Cherubim and seraphim do. Let's think about cherubim a minute. In Genesis, after the fall of man, the entrance to the Garden of Eden was closed off to Adam and Eve by what? By cherubim, plural. Cherubim is plural, cherub is one. In, in, in Hebrew it's cherubim and cherub. Cherub. And a flaming sword. Now whether the flaming sword was just a sword on its own or whether they held it, I'm not too sure, but... Cherubim guarded the entrance to the Garden of Eden. In Ezekiel, the prophet sees cherubim. The cherubim Ezekiel saw had wings and four faces, the face of a cherub. We just still don't know what that looks like. The face of a man, the face of a lion, and the face of an eagle. And the ark and the cherubim were an earthly copy of a heavenly reality. Heavenly beings guarding the presence of the Most Holy One. The cherubim are guardians of the presence of the Most High. A number of times in the Old Testament, the Lord is declared to be enthroned among the cherubim. Most versions put in italics above, but it's added in. Among or between would make just as much sense and would be even better contextually. The cherubim are not protecting God, they're protecting us from God. If we come too close, guess what's happened? If you come close to a, a, a three times holy God, you'll burn. You'll burn. Absolute holiness will burn us up, so long as we're still fallen creatures. So cherubim, God, don't come any closer. In Isaiah's case, he saw seraphim doing a very similar thing. Ezekiel and Isaiah were kept from coming too close to the majesty of God by heavenly guardians. You see, our God is holy, holy, holy. It's the only thing that's said three times. We don't read love, love, love. We don't read wisdom, wisdom, wisdom. But we do read holy, holy, holy. Now when in Hebrew you say something twice, you're emphasizing it. When you say it three times, boy do you mean it. You really mean this. Our God is, say it with me, holy, holy, holy. And then throughout Scripture, not just in Hebrews when we get to it, but throughout Scripture, you find this. Our God is a consuming fire. People say and sing some very odd things about the fire of God, some very clappy-clappy fire of God songs. And I, I get worried about that. It is an expression and symbol of His triple holiness. His holy, fiery presence burns up sin and evil. One day He'll renew the world by his holy presence. Burn out every evil thing from him. Be careful about asking for the fire of God. If you do, be prepared yourself to be lit up by his light and cleansed by his fire. So there were molded and carved golden cherubim above the Ark of the Covenant, looking downwards, their wings almost touching a space above the mercy seat. But in that space was the Shekinah, the cherubim are called cherubim of glory, for above the Ark of the Covenant, between the cherubim, was a visible sign of God's presence. 
It's called Shekinah. That's not a word from the Bible, it's from the rabbis. It's a Hebrew word meaning dwelling or settling. What did it look like? Well, the nearest we can describe it as it was a ball or a point of fire and light. When Moses saw a burning bush, but it wasn't burning, yet full of fire and light, what did he see? He saw the manifest presence of God in Shekinah, fire and light. Now, God doesn't always show himself that way, but he did to Moses. He did above the Ark of the Covenant. When Jesus was transfigured before his closest three disciples, and his face shone like the sun. What were they seeing? They were seeing the glory of God, otherwise known as the Shekinah. Now, if the Hebrew scholars pre- here, you'll probably tell me it's Shekinah. I, I don't do Hebrew very well. No, it's not my thing. Bit of Greek. You see, God, who is light and fire, means Jesus, by his own nature too, is light and fire. And the Holy Spirit is light and fire. Our God is a consuming fire. And above that Shekinah, between the cherubim, directly above the Ark of the Covenant, outside the tabernacle was another sign of God's presence. That pillar of cloud by day and fire by night, directly above the Holy of Holies. And this is a better picture because the pillar of cloud spread out and covered the whole camp. It sheltered Israelites from the burning desert sun. Those who wanted suntans had to walk a distance away. The pillar of fire at night lit up the whole camp. If you stepped outside your tent at night, you needed no light. There's no street lamps. Interesting, when you get to Revelation, there's no lights there either, because God is the light. So we've got the ark. We've got the cherubim. We've got the shekinah. Let's come back to that lid. It's called the mercy seat the top of the ark was covered with gold and it's called the mercy seat on that golden lid just once a year the high priest went in with the blood of an atoning sacrifice the day of atonement and sprinkled the lid of that ark with blood blood of sacrifice blood of atonement price of forgiveness redemption now when these things have been so prepared the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, the outer part with the, with the bread and with, the, with, the, with, with the, uh, the, the tree of life, which is now a tree of light and, and the altar of incense. Every day they're going out, performing the divine worship. But into the second, into the holy of holies, only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. Once a year the high priest took the blood of the atonement offering into the holy of holies, and sprinkled it onto the mercy seat between the cherubim into the very presence of God. Now let me put that another way to you. God, sitting between the cherubim, looked down on the golden lid of the Ark of the Covenant within which was his broken law. But his broken law was now covered by the blood of atonement. That's why that lid is called the mercy seat. Because God forgave their sins. The sin of Israel was covered, covered by the blood of atonement. Broken law, covered by the blood of atonement. Now we'll come back to that in Hebrews chapter 9, the second half, and in chapter 10. Let's move on, verse 8 to 9. The Holy Spirit is signifying this. 
that the way into the holy place, the way to be in the holy of holies, had not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered. They were still being offered when this letter was written because the temple was still standing, which was the successor to the tabernacle. Let me say again, I'll get strung up for it, saying it, but the temple was never as good as the tabernacle. The tabernacle was God's design. The temple was man's reworking of it. There's 15 chapters of the Bible, Exodus 25 to 20, chapter 40. How many of you read through those? It goes on a bit, doesn't it? About the, distru- in the instructions for the tabernacle. Why? Because that was God's design to teach Every bit of it has significance. According, gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot make the worshipper perfect in conscience. Notice the word conscience. Since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. Israel were given the sanctuary of God, the tent of God, among them, in the middle of their tent city in the wilderness. They were in time to enter into the rest in Canaan, live in their promised land with Jerusalem as their city and with a Davidic king to rule over them. These are all fulfilled for us through Jesus, through this new and better covenant. These things which were pictures are for us eternal and heavenly realities. We live in the new, greater, better and final covenant. The detailed rituals of the Old Covenant are not for us. We're not under that law. We're not under law. We're not even under the food laws. You want to eat seafood today? You know, shrimps and shellfish? Go ahead. You want to eat pork today? Go ahead. Why? Because we're not under law. We're not under law of Sabbath keeping even. Those things do not hold upon us. See, the tabernacle, though rich in meaning and symbolism, was only a symbol until the present time. A symbol until the present time. Present time meaning what? The age of Messiah and of his gospel. The time of Reformation came. Now, we're not talking about Lutheran, Calvin and Zwingli there. We're talking about Jesus. He came and reformed, changed the whole thing. Why? By bringing in the new covenant, which overtakes and supersedes the old. We are not old covenant people. We don't live under that law. We're not under Moses. We're under Messiah Jesus. But when Christ appeared, Messiah appeared, as a high priest of the good things to come. Oh, I love that phrase. He's the high priest. Let me preach it in a minute. He entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle. Now, where are we talking about here? We're not talking about the temple in Jerusalem. We're talking about heaven. We're talking about the presence of God, the Father. He entered into the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands. That is to say, not of this creation. And not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Oh, Having made atonement by his blood, Jesus ascended to the Father. He entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, not of this creation. He entered into the holy place once for all, not going back another year, not going back another time. Once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. 
the throne of God. Jesus is our atonement and Jesus is our mercy seat. If you think I'm pushing it too far, watch this. Romans 3. Being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption, this atoning sacrifice, this, this, this blood sacrifice that brings forgiveness, the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation, a literal word there, mercy seat in his blood through faith. It's the same word. Paul wrote Romans. Guess what else he wrote? Hebrews, I think. Jesus is our mercy seat. You see the ark, the mercy seat, the brother of the broken law, the sprinkled blood that covers the broken law. These are a picture of Jesus and what he's done for us in propitiation, atonement and redemption by his blood. What does he want from us? Faith. To trust him. Jesus stands between God and his broken law for us. And it's through faith in his atoning blood that we're forgiven and restored to God. And guess what? We pick up again on the mercy seat and the blood of Jesus in the second part, Hebrews 9 and into chapter 10. In fact, the whole thing is really, you know, it's better, it's the blood of Christ. Better blood, better sacrifice. Let me talk about this phrase for a minute. He's a high priest of good things to come. How many of you understand we live in the now and not yet of his covenant and his kingdom? It started, but we haven't got it all now. We're saved from sin, but how many of you know we're still overcoming sin? He's our healer, but we keep having to ask him because we keep getting sick. We live in a fallen world. The better is yet to come, but our high priest guarantees that we'll be there and he we looked at this in Hebrews 4, he's our forerunner. He will lead us there. He will take us there. He's begun a good work, we'll complete it. That's, that's a Jack sermon in a few weeks' time from Philippians. He's the beginning and the end, the Alpha and Omega. As far as he's concerned, it's finished, but we're still, we're still, we're still working through. We're still looking for it. One day... All difficulty, all distress, all disappointment, duress, disease, disaster, demonic oppression, even death will be put away forever. He is our high priest of good things to come. He will lead us to that better day from the start of our faith to the end of our faith. So, I thought this was a long sermon, but we're nearly done. So here's the application for us today at the end of this section. If the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled those who have been defiled, sanctified for the cleansing of the flesh. It was a temporary forgiveness. It was a, it was a for the moment cleansing. It was. Because it anticipated Jesus. How much more will the blood of Messiah who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience. We read the word conscience already. Cleanse your conscience from dead works, works that lead to death, works that are, are about this dead and dying and diseased humanity and sinfulness, to serve the living God. Let's take you for a walkthrough. It's the picture I put up earlier, but I've added to it here. This is the kind of the way life is for us as Christians, believers in Jesus. 
we again and again come to the fact that Jesus died on the cross for us. He was sacrificed. The altar of burnt offering, he was sacrificed. And there we receive our forgiveness. There we were, we were reminded of the fact that we are redeemed. Our bonds have been broken. We have been freed at such cost. And then we go to the laver, which is interesting because Paul, writing to Titus, says, he uses this phrase, the washing and renewing of the Holy Spirit. It talks about new birth, being born again in this, in this way. The washing and renewing of the Holy Spirit. Why are we baptized? To act out something that is true in, 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 in us anyway, that God has done it. We are born of God. We are washed. Paul writes to the Corinthians, you were, some of you were this and that, homosexuals and liars and perjurers and murderers, but you are washed. The laver is a symbol of the fact we come again and again to be washed, to be made clean. What do we do then? Go home? No. We move on in. We stand as if in the presence of God and we we receive from Jesus our life and our light. He is our bread. We commune with him. And at the same time, we're offering prayers and worship. The order of interest. That's, that's where we are. Let me let you into a secret. That's what we do on Sunday mornings. Together. You can do this personally, anytime. We happen to do it together Sunday morning. I'll mention it in a while. But the things we most of us do in our Protestant and Charismatic and Pentecostal services... Preaching, worshipping, breaking bread. Are those three things there? The lampstand is a symbol for truth. We preach the truth. The bread is a symbol for the presence of Jesus. We appreciate, we, we hunger for the presence of Jesus. And we celebrate it in bread, literal bread. And we offer our prayers and our worship to him. Jesus has been offered as our perfect and final sacrifice for all people, for all sin, for all time. He has made eternal redemption. He is our atonement. He is our mercy seat. We're forgiven through his blood simply on the basis of faith. We are washed and renewed by the Holy Spirit. Our conscience cleansed from works of death so that we are now engaged in works of life. And we draw near. Don't go away again. Draw near, draw closer. And find Jesus to be our light, our life, our daily bread. We draw even nearer and we see his glory. But what are the last words of verse 14 we look at today? We serve the living God. We serve the living God. We serve him in his presence and we go from his presence to serve him too. The God who is in all life and engages in all our life. There really is no divide between spiritual and secular. You can't cut up your life into portions and say, that's where God is, but he's not there. You're keeping him from there. It's a dangerous thing to try and do, to try and tame God. Tell him what he can and can't do. There's no walls, there's no partitions. All of our life is under the gaze of our Father. And the Holy Spirit wants to invade every bit of our life. So it's all spiritual, because it's ruled by the Spirit. And it's all holy, because that's where we're treasuring God. And it's all glorious, because that's where God's been on. Every bit of our lives. 
Serving the Lord is not about whether you do this or that in church, beyond church, in home, out of the home, with a family, without a family. It's not about what we do. It's about the fact that whatever we do, we're serving Christ in it. Having come to find Jesus as our all in all, being devoted to him from the heart, we serve him. Firstly, personally, from the heart, we devote ourselves to him. Prayer, worship, obedience, searching the scriptures to find his plan, his will for us. Then, if you've got a family to raise, you serve the Lord in doing so. If you're going out to work at an office or a workplace or a hospital, you serve the Lord doing that. If you think that in doing the ordinary things of life you can't serve the Lord, I beg you, go and read scripture. Let it wrap around your mind, let it change your heart. You need to see that serving him flows from the heart and whatever we do during our waking hours is serving the Lord Christ if we do it from our heart for him. Absolutely everything. Whatever it is. It's a heart issue, it's a worship issue. Even our services, most Protestant services, follow this kind of little pattern of the outer court, outer part of the tabernacle. An altar of incense, we've stood as in his presence and offered him worship today. And I thank God for answering my prayers because we did encounter his presence today. There's a lampstand. This is a lectern, not a lampstand. But when we receive from his word, we've stood before his light. Some of us may have been enlightened in our understanding today. Some of us may have been searched by his truth today, but it's the same. It's all the same. We come to be searched by his light and be filled with his light. The truth changes us. And we come to the bread table. And in communion we act out, again, that bread table. We come to our table of showbread. It's the Lord's table. By taking bread and wine, what does Paul say? We show the Lord's death until he comes. Let me put this really simply to you. We eat with the Lord. We don't just eat with one another we eat with Christ. The Lord's Supper, Jesus was there at the Lord's Supper, you know. There's a reason this is called the Lord's Table because we're stepping back into the same point in time, in a sense, and we are sitting with Jesus, receiving the same emblems, thinking about him going to the cross for us. We show the Lord's death until he comes. We sit at his table like Abraham sat with the Lord. We eat the Lord's bread just as David ate the showbread from the tabernacle. And it's true for us, as I read earlier, I got ahead of myself, just as he wrote, you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You know, we might be in all kinds of trouble. There might be all kinds of stuff happening, but God wants us to sit at his table and receive from him. Jesus' broken body and shed blood are our salvation, but he's also our daily bread, our bread of life. Having received light and life again from the Lord Jesus, we worship him, we give thanks to him. As if at the altar of incense. And then, guess what? We have to leave the court of his house, in a sense, and go out and serve the Lord. But it's what we receive from him that fills us and energizes us and equips us to go and serve him. It's very simple, really. Why do you eat? Well, you don't eat to get fat. That's a very strange idea about eating. You eat to get nourishment so you can do. You eat to be renewed, to be refreshed, to be energized. 
And if you eat to the extent where you're not energized, you just, oh, I'm too full. It's not good eating, is it? We've all done it, especially Christmas. Dinner at four o'clock, by five o'clock. <laughs> we eat to be strengthened. We receive from Jesus to be equipped to go and serve him. And when we're tired, of tired, we get what we do. We come back to receive again. You better learn to do this beyond Sundays, because Sunday to Sunday is a long time. We do it together. But you can do this yourself. I come to you, Jesus. I'm anchoring in you right now. I'm receiving from you. This is the lesson of the tabernacle, an earthly image of a heavenly reality, and it's all about Jesus. The day will come when we can dwell in the house of the Lord forever, in the holy of holies, with our God. For now, we come to Him, we worship Him, we receive from Him, and we go out to serve Him again and again until He comes.